We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Hello, and welcome to episode four of our uh, second season. Uh, there's the three of us, uh, Mihaela, Chelsea, and myself, Xavier. And uh, today we're going to continue our encounter series um, by encountering desire, um, which uh, really is, a, I suppose, a, a potentially enjoyable topic, a potentially frustrating topic, um, but uh, one that we thought might might resonate with a lot of listeners, and indeed it comes up uh, certainly for all of us in in sessions with clients. Um, so yeah, so so we'll we'll turn our, our minds to to desire and what 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 it means, what we think it means, how we experience it, how we encounter it, um, and uh, and hopefully we'll come out the other end. Um, I don't know, desiring more, maybe maybe you'll want to hear more about our, from our podcast. Who knows? Yeah, thank you, Sal. So the we'll talk about the second D after death, right? <laughs> desire, right? And uh, usually death and desire have a strange connection. I, mean, I, I suppose that, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, as you mentioned it, yeah, I suppose it does. Mm-hmm. And I'm also wondering, do we turn our minds to desire or are we usually our hearts and bodies turned on by desire? I mean, are we talking mind-body problem or what? <laughs> <laughs> Always with desire. Yeah, because it's also definitely a body and mind the desire appears in the heart, in the mind. And so maybe we should take a moment to just talk about how we experience it. What is the experience of desire? How do you know when you're experiencing it? Yeah, thank you for uh, um, bringing us back to experience, to the land of experience. And um, that's very consistent how we approach things in existential analysis, phenomenology. And um, yeah, desire is like a desire, the way I experience it, um, my body, in my heart, it's like that it's um, a movement, like defi- it's very dynamic. So it's a, and I feel pulled, um, uh, stretched towards uh, something, somebody, an object uh, of desire, like whatever is it that um, I'm attracted to or I sense a value, um, something, somebody. So there is definitely what stands out for me in terms of experience is the dynamic, the movement, the being um, pulled outside myself, outwardly. Yeah, towards towards something, somebody else. Um, definitely, the kind of that, yeah, the pull, that motivation. Um, even if you don't act on it or realize it, but just, you know, um, I. Um, um, Mahila brought some um, some macaron in today for just to, to, to for us to enjoy during the, the episode, and I'm I feel myself desiring more of them, mm-hmm. and that's uh, yeah definitely a taste mm-hmm. thing and a, an enjoyment and pleasure thing. But um, it's me, I'm, I'm staring at them right now. <laughs> well, well, go, 
well, well, go ahead and <laughs> enjoy <laughs> them. But I think, and it's not because you are hungry, probably, mm-hmm. right? So that's I think that's very no, important because it's, it's about pleasure, enjoyment, not necessarily about a need or a lack that you have, right? Like it's um, you mentioned already the pleasure and enjoyment, and I guess desire uh, evokes like the po- the potential of uh, pleasure and enjoyment. Yeah, desire wants, and so it's this leaning towards something, this pull towards, like you said, Mahila. And it's also, um, for me, it's a bit of like a curiosity. It's energizing as well. It feels kind of um, uplifting to desire. It piques my interest. And then it also, I find, um, takes up quite a bit of space in focus, as well, if I'm desiring something, like I'm looking at you, looking at the the macaroons <laughs> here, um, it uh, it kind of interjects the focus and it takes the focus mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, t- that takes takes the f- oh, sorry takes the focus is is a thing. It is it's it's very difficult I think to think about anything else when we desire something. I mean the the the. Um, obvious example is is from our first episode, right? Encountering love and 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 uh, falling in love and crushes and whatever. You, it's very difficult to think about anything: homework, uh, work, um, responsibilities. Yeah. Okay, so what's the difference between desire and obsession? And also on um, uh, in that the first one, then just on what you just said that the desire is uplifting. Um, it could be also incredibly painful. And incredibly frustrating, and that is, uh, I think, it uh, the obsession, like uh, and pain, <laughs> kind of connect here. So, when does desire becomes obsession, or when the desire becomes obsessive, mm-hmm. maybe? Uh, <coughs> I, I think the the simple way of of differentiating the two is um, desire is a want, whereas obsession is a have to have. Mm-hmm. Right? I cannot not be. I cannot. I cannot. I'm going to lose myself in double negatives um i cannot not have it whereas desire i can be frustrated it's not pleasant but i i I, there's enough uh, i don't know distance from it there's enough um uh recognition that i i I don't have to have it i always you know i might miss out i might be sad but it'll be okay and I think too, like with the have to have it, there's a sense of loss of control that, that can come in where it becomes really hard to maybe limit oneself or to look away or to decide not to. Mm-hmm. What well, uh, on the other hand, like desire can be very um, all-consuming. I mean, as you said, um, like when we fall in love and we're in love with someone, especially in phases of infatuation and all that, it could be all-consuming and it could occupy us completely. And there is something perhaps even valuable in that <laughs> full being fully occupied. Uh, uh, absolutely, although I, I, I'd suggest that that infatuation is tends towards obsession rather than desire. It's, it's much more of that sort. Um, and indeed, it's it's maybe what we um, uh, might s- uh, distinguish between, let's say, a naive or an immature and a mature love, where you know, in your teens, in your, particularly in your early teens, you're like, oh, I cannot live without this person that I've been dating, quote unquote, for three days. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the worst thing in the world if they suddenly go off with somebody else. Um, when you know, 
20 or 30 years later, you realize the, the, the folly of that, the youthful folly and, and, and value of it, but still you realize it. Totally. So, so what is desire? Like now that we started with what Charles invite us to reflect on our own experiences, how would we say it? How would we, not to say define it, but like, because um, there, there are other uh, terms that come close, right? Including that, the obsession, but also we'll talk about, I'm sure, longings, nostalgia, and all that that are um, coming very close. So what is desire? Um, as you say, that what's coming to mind for me is a reference from Esther Perel. She's a sex therapist, couples therapist, um, I believe in the States. And she talks about desires only present when there is a separateness. And so it's something from the outside that occupies my attention or catches my attention and then, and then I want it. And so she talks about desire being really difficult to, to have or obtain when... Um, there's oneness or too much similarity. And so I think at least the yeah. distinction that I'm coming to with that is something from the outside is captivating. Mm-hmm. I think there is what I understood from what you said. It's also the idea of a gap, that there is something that is not within my control or within my grasp. So there is a distance, there is a gap, uh, and that gap is uh, pulling me. There is that dynamic movement towards uh, whatever pulls me. But now it's interesting you said that it's uh, an attraction towards something outside because I was just feeling quite guilty because I said at a certain point that um, the desire is um, something that pulls me outwardly. And then immediately after we start talking, so I said, oh my God, it's not just outwardly, right? Like um, it's also I can, can I not feel desire inwardly for I miss myself sometimes. I desire myself, and I don't mean in a <laughs> sexual way or anything like that, but I do desire my company, and I do desire to come closer to myself. So that's, that was intriguing, because for me it came a bit of a guilty feeling, that saying that desire is only outwardly, but there is still a gap, of course. But in approaching yourself, there is also yeah. a gap, right? So maybe there's an inner gap that mm-hmm. then is approached yeah. relationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but m- what came up for me there was was the existential idea of self-transcendence. You're not in this kind of like nirvana kind of way, but but almost kind of coming outside of yourself and then and then being attracted to yourself. Um, you know, in that inner dialogue that you might have, or as you say, being with myself. I was, I think I mentioned in a previous episode when I talked to clients about self-transcendence. I said I always imagined myself. Kind of like the, those cartoons where an effigy of a, or an outline of of the character, um, and becomes like this soul or shadow and kind of stands next to them, mm-hmm. and and then I always imagine that happening to me, and then the dialogue with myself. So I am outside of myself in, mm-hmm. when I'm with myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there is the gap, the distance that uh, well, is dynamic, has a certain dynamic. But I think also important is that I'm usually, at least for myself, desire and attracted to something that I sense that is good for me, that will give me something good, valuable, or pleasurable. I'm rarely attracted or not attracted, actually, to something that I perceive as only painful or um, or like um, repulsive in certain ways. So I think that's also important that we desire something that we experience as potentially good and we cannot have it or there is some distance that creates that dynamic of yeah, wanting. Yeah, and, and almost for, for me the word that came up was 
more two words was more and adding. It's going to add to my experience. It's it's and or or if it's something I know, I want more of it. Um, maybe a bit too much sometimes, but you know, the, the macaron and chocolate are <laughs> prime examples, right? Where we 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 want more, even though we, you know, maybe better off not. But yeah, but it adds. Yeah, it, it is. It it the hope is that it'll bring me something else, something nice, of value and, and pleasurable. Mm. I mean, I think desire and pleasure are quite related. But for sure, we can desire things that are not necessarily pleasurable but still perceived as good as more adding value adding something more and so what is um, uh, how do we distinguish between desire and longing or uh, nostalgia being uh, that kind of longing or painful longing for home I mean uh, <coughs> I think that the first one is is e- easier the, the kind of the longing um, longing to me is kind of um, well, literally, kind of a, uh, a an unrequited desire, um, and requited is the wrong word here because it doesn't have to be, mm-hmm. but uh, a desire that I haven't fulfilled, attained, but also one that, for whatever reason, seems very distant. If we're talking about that gap, that distance between us and it, um, longing to yeah, when I imagine it, it's it's far in the distance and maybe even never really attainable never ever really attainable i don't think like a, a desire for the unattainable or for something rather <laughs> or likely unattainable mm. which creates a more intense dynamic sometimes and a, maybe sometimes a bitter sweetness yeah yeah i could see that and then i i like um, nostalgia is one of my favorite feelings like i i really enjoy nostalgia um uh, I know it kind of you know makes us think about rose tinted um, glasses and mm-hmm. and what have you, but it but it, it it does have this wonderful warm feeling to it, um, and kind of the way I see nostalgia as as desiring um, a time in the past, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it doesn't have to be a strong. It's not like I desire literally for it to to be happening to me in the moment, but remembering. That maybe even there, remembering the 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 pleasure, the value, the enjoyment of attaining that desire back then. But I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, we maybe we didn't even attain it back then. Like we didn't know that there was an object of desire that it will become the object of nostalgia. We're just immersed in it, and we we're just going. I mean, I'm thinking about my life, like in Romania mm. as a child before coming here, right? Like. I didn't know, I, I didn't spend time back then kind of thinking, oh, wow, this is such a value and I'm going to feel nostalgia later. So it was that uh, immersive experience, but there was something in it. And mm. now as I look back, causes that uh, heart longing and mm-hmm. desire and, and yearning. You see, I would, I would suggest that, that, that you enjoyed, maybe not entirely, but there were moments, sufficient moments that you enjoyed and that's what you long back for, right? Um, I don't think you can have nostalgia. Nobody has nostalgia for, say, I don't know. Um, oh, it's going to be really dark. Nobody has nostalgia for child abuse, right? <laughs> Nobody, no, no kid who's been abused has nostalgia for that. It's not. It's going to be 
the nice things, the the, the enjoyable yeah, things. It could be it could be also an atmosphere. It could be something very again immersive, right? The, but not necessarily a specific thing, but the atmosphere, the how the texture, how it's the tapestry that is you know weaved in um, in our existence at a certain point in time. Yeah, and that's for me. That's uh, and this is maybe pointing to 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 ones that we actually never had. Um, this is for me. It's ustalgi, right? You know, the, so this is for listeners who don't know. Ustalgi is um, is uh, nostalgia for East, for the old Eastern Europe, the the Warsaw Pact, the co- communist Eastern Europe, um, and I've always been fascinated by 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 the Cold War and spy things, and and I I was always drawn, I'm still drawn to Eastern Europe. Yeah, I went to Romania in when I was just out of high school, and uh, I've been to and and there's something I've you know, been to Moscow, and it, but it's very much the atmosphere that. That, that does it for me. Even though I'd never lived it, I didn't grow up in it, and I know all the harsh realities <laughs> of it, mm-hmm. but it, it exists. Yeah, and it's uh, with the nostalgia, it's interesting that we can have nostalgia through those atmospheres, and like for s- even for places that uh, we haven't known yet, like we, <laughs> which is bizarre, or longings for places that um, we've never been to, and maybe they don't exist. So there is that also points the, to the role of imagination in our desires and how much that creates and um, deepens our desires. What about desire and lust? Is desire lust? It, it can be, yeah. It, I think desire can be within lust. It would be more, more intense and obviously perhaps more sexual in nature. But I think certainly there's an overlap mm-hmm. within them. I probably like like lust, depending, of course, how we even define the term, right? But it's more like um, need-based. There is more drive-based, while desire, yeah, perhaps uh, has that dimension that we mentioned about um, we we I sense an object of desire. There is that gap. There is that perception of a value that is not so clear if it's. Just lost. So, but I agree with you that they can go, definitely, hopefully, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and intensify yeah. each other. I think too, there's something to be said about like scarcity when it comes to desire, and and something you said just prompted me to think about it. But I'm in a season of life where I'm desiring chai tea lattes, <laughs> and and I just uh, that's what I want when I, you know, go to the shop and and get one and um but it's not always like that and i can't say when it will be like that it seems to be like not necessarily seasonal in the sense of weather but there's there's a period of time where i'm like okay yeah no this is the period of time i really want coffee and all of a sudden now i want chai tea lattes and who knows in a couple of months it'll switch to something else so i think you know in in having something consistently, then desire seems to leave as well or move on to something else. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would, uh, you know, as you say, I'd say that, I think it makes a lot of sense. You kind of, partly you get habituated to it, but you, you have it so much that the desire ceases you, because you don't have to desire it. It's there, right? You have it. Yeah, uh, interesting way of, of, of looking at it. And I, I guess that's so important. Going back to the gap, the 
gap and the distance, right? Because it's, uh, again, in our society that we have access to so much <laughs> and our needs could be instantly gratified like we have now. Online delivery for pretty much everything, right? So there is no opportunity to create a gap or a distance to, to even feel if we have a desire, if there is any scarcity. So I guess this uh, lack of scarcity may, <laughs> may really impact our desire, which impacts in return our connection with life and pleasure and the intensity of the vitality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and <coughs> then what you're touching on there reminds me of what we talked about earlier about, um, uh, let's call it false desire, where the desire is not necessarily mine. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, say, everything's available, right? So I, <coughs> I can have it, even though I never ever wanted this thing I, it maybe has no use or value or anything I just happen to oh I want this now kind of a manufactured desire if you like um, and then um, but then also I think in, maybe in terms of, of clients um, uh, where where we, our desires kind of let's say for a career, type of career or, or desires for success maybe originate not so much from within us but say from within our parents because we can blame them for everything, as we, as we always <laughs> do. But um, you know, where you know, suddenly I, I remember I had a friend in 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 my undergrad who uh, she wanted to be a ballerina. That's what she she was a dancer, um, but she was studying accounting. Mm. And yeah, <laughs> um, in, indeed. And and I remember saying, but why why are you doing this? Well, you know, it was a mixture of parental expectations, and then of course. Um, uh, you know, or what are you going to do with being a ballerina, right? You, know, you can succeed at it and maybe to make a bit of a living in it. But so her desire in that, I, I mean, I think, I don't know, I'm not in contact, but probably went very unfulfilled. And yeah, absolutely. And then I'm thinking like maybe it's uh, good to reflect and uh, on wha why are desires so important? My desire, <laughs> our desire not our parents' desires, but like why Why is it important to desire? And even if we sometimes cannot have what we desire, but what is the, I don't know, existential importance of desire? And if we don't desire, what are we losing or what are we, how are we impacted? I'd, I'd say for me it's, it's about move, movement, right? Desire, desire like attraction, it pulls me, it, it pulls me along. It moves me to, mm, towards, towards what I don't know, towards something, as opposed to, and, and you know, it might be worth distinguishing here in in, in extension analysis. We distinguish between uh, values and drives, or, or attraction and drives, and that which pulls us towards it, and then that which pushes us. Um, you know, drives being things like I need to pee. Peeing as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I suppose peeing could be an attraction, but. Um, <laughs> But but these are the things that you know we have to do. We have to respond to. You, you we can fight the needing to pee. Eventually, our body's going to make us do it. Um, but yeah, movement towards it's. I, I think we need desire to do anything really. It's a powerful motivator, right? And it it brings vitality too, and um, the zest for life, the taste, the full taste of of life. Without desire, it's kind of bleak. And even if sometimes we don't get what we want and we suffer, but still, uh, it's so there is so much 
life and the dynamic connection with life then? Yeah, there's so many times in, you know, working with a client with depression where the desire is gone, that vitality is gone, motivation is gone, and there's this stagnant mm -hmm. energy um, or even lack of energy. And so I think one of the ways that often I help clients to kind of consider what it might be like to come out of this stagnancy is to start to dream again and go, okay, yeah, if, you know, I know this week has been horrible or you've been really down, you're not feeling well. If you weren't feeling this way, what might you do? What might you enjoy? What what pulls you or draws you in life? What might you experience as pleasurable if you kind of allowed yourself to start to imagine and to dream again? Thank you, Chelsea. That's great. I also ask my clients often, like especially with depression, right? Like, what gives you some joy? What moves you in the everyday life? But also, it's an excellent point uh, of access to to the person as well, to ourselves, right? When uh, we ask someone, "What do you like?" and they they provide an answer, that's uh, such a direct access to to who they are and uh, what moves them in this world, right? So it's also um, an excellent way of cultivating that inner dialogue and self-awareness and self-knowledge and, and acting from ourselves rather than our parents' desires, for example. Yeah, and we can become e either really disconnected from what we desire, from what we like, or what we're attracted to, or maybe uh, we grew up in such a context where it hasn't been allowed or hasn't <coughs> been experienced at all, and so we don't even know it's there. It's yet to be explored and so I think one of the one of the helpful kind of exercises just to acknowledge with desire is that it's not um, it's not contrived we don't create it it's something that is there and we experience it and we tap into it and we notice it it's um, attraction it, it just you know we don't choose our attraction we don't choose our desire and and can we acknowledge what it is that we like? And can we acknowledge what we desire? Mm -hmm. And and what if there is no desire? What if, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the lack of desire. And, uh, of course, depressive clients suffer from this. But other people, too, I mean, other clients or people we know. Like, that's really um, a difficult one, a painful one. Like, the lack of desire and could be like any kind of desire. Of course, sexual desire, too, but it could be... Like some people really don't know what they desire, or there is nothing. Really, it's kind of flatline. In that case, I start really small with kind of daily routines. Um, you know, most people have some sort of habit that they follow. For example, in getting ready for work, and it's like, you know. I don't know why I talk about breakfast often. Maybe it's my favorite meal, so maybe that's why. But to go, you know, what makes you choose toast over eggs, mm -hmm. over bacon, over something else? Can you start to, to slow down and just take a moment maybe to ask yourself, what might I desire right now? And it might be just even the smallest little flicker of desire, but to start to notice it and to pay attention to it. Yeah, and, and to the same, to another degree, like some people are um, afraid of feeling desire. 
So even if they notice a flicker, they kind of um, want to shut it down pretty quickly. So there is uh, so there are there is suffering coming from lack of desire, but then it's also through fear of desire. So what are we um, afraid of in our desires? What are we afraid of in our desires? Or yeah, um, hmm. I think I've certainly experienced clients who, um, who kind of maybe have grown up in 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 environments in which desire was, desire kind of is mixed with pleasure, and pleasure is 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 forbidden, in many you know in, in various forms, and um, that often manifests kind of in sexual desire, but uh, not exclusively, and um, and yeah, so th- there the the fear is that if I acknowledge a desire. Then, then I I become bad, or or you know, um, uh, if I have a, a desire to do nothing, right? Then I'm lazy, mm-hmm. and so it it really kind of um, it, it 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 has yeah has the it it, it but it, but that you know those two examples point to again um, the difference between our internal desire and say the external expectations. Yeah, it's a, oh, it's such a great point. Such such a great point about uh, distinguishing desire from expectations, and uh, even learning uh, our teaching our clients to distinguish those. Because I guess many people use them inter- interchangeably. When they say I want something, actually it's not me, but uh, I'm under the the, you know, the spell of an expectation. I don't even know. It's so important. The desire is coming, as you said, Charles, spontaneously, like. Uh, from within myself, I feel that movement, that being drawn expectation is kind of uh, from above, like kind of it's and it's much more rigid and less free. And it has a, a bit of a flavor of you have to, and if not, there is a consequence. And I'm still stuck on the question that you asked about what we fear in desire mm-hmm. um, in allowing it to be, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even to pursue it. Um, and I think, at least what's coming up for me, is a few different reasons for that. We could, if we obtain that desire, we could lose it, mm-hmm. too. So I think that there's there's potential grief. There's also uh, perhaps failure, not being able to have what we desire if we pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it doesn't meet our expectations that it won't be what we've built it up to be or what we think it might be. Also, uh, losing control. Like if, it, uh, if I desire uh, something, somebody too much, and what if I lose my mind? Or what if I do something uncharacteristic? Or, you know, like, and um, I'm completely losing it. And then, of course, there are other consequences there. But so some people, even at the, when they feel some desire immediately, they shut it down. And especially if they come from environments like you mentioned, self, right? And especially with pleasure, right? If there is anything that evokes a sense of pleasure, it's immediately shut down because it's, it evokes that sense of I'm losing control or I'm, and that's bad or I'm bad. So it's, uh, it's not that easy sometimes to to be honest about our desires or to even say, well, yeah, I do desire that, and it doesn't mean I'm going to have it or I'm going to act in, in a certain way, but to to still recognize. And that happens in therapy a lot, that some clients desire us as therapies, like um, not only maybe erotically, but also they want to be like us in, I don't know, in what aspects, right? So it's, uh, 
and in, in therapy we make room for that in the sense of exploring it right and helping the client to understand better what is it what value they detect or what potential is there because obviously it's uh, it's about them right and accessing something important for themselves so i guess in, in therapy we can work with fear of desire especially if it happens in the therapeutic relationship there's a <coughs> another kind of still on uh, it's not quite so much an expectation but feeding from expectations this kind of external um i've come across in the last i don't know few couple of years um uh, a few clients who who will um uh, kind of be wanting to, desiring to do things to 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 change the world, let's say, or to do things and and get really upset about, you know, things say about climate change or about uh, social injustice and all that kind of stuff. And and when we talk about it, they, I find that they'll often start at at this is wrong, mm-hmm. or or they'll say they'll make a comment uh, say about I don't know. I'm making this up now because it, it, nothing's coming to mind. But you know the the whole thing about straws, plastic straws, get really upset that people aren't using the right straws, and and somewhat provocatively, I will say, well, why should they? And the horror that comes across their faces in the, in that moment, as if I'm doubting the legitimacy of what they're saying. But the point that I'm trying to get them to is to bring them back to how, why you? Like, why is it that this bothers you? Right, not because it's 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 a selfish or self-involved thing, but it needs to come from you. Not because we ought to do this, but why? But why? What? What about you? Wants to do this, and then therefore, what can you do? Right, it it really kind of personalizes it. Yeah, I think what you describe is people who are uh, very annoyed by certain things like climate change, and uh, it's usually ideology and propaganda. It's not has nothing to do with desire or with themselves that they finally found something that uh, they feel that does justice to whatever injustices they felt or finally they found the right thing to fight for and it kind of creates a sense of purpose or direction, but I don't think it has anything to do with desire. No, n- yeah. no, no in, in yeah. indeed. And, mm-hmm. and, and then my, th- my whole, the whole point of me uh, provoking them is, is I want them to return there. I want to get them to that so that it, it there is a value for them, not just because you know Instagram said I should, Right, but because it because it comes from me, I want the world to be different. I want to leave a better world for 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 humanity. I want to like this and and again, you know, let's say I I I. It sounds a bit um, uh, uh, solipsistic, but but it's very much about grounding that inner value and then going going back to that that uh, thing. Yeah. So are there uh, you said I I I is there is desire are there collective desires or is desire only personal or individual and that is honestly a question that <laughs> came up from your comment about the i and it's i don't know the answer to the question like obviously it seems we know that it's an i phenomenon like an i mm-hmm. desire but can we have can we feel desire collectively my 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 instinct says no my instinct i i, I my instinct says says if it's a collective thing, then it probably is handed down. Yeah, you know, I kind of, you know, can we, we think about about patriotism and 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 religious kind of uh, crusades and what have you, and 
we can we can maybe superficially say that uh, well we all desire X Y and Z, but it it tends to come from top down. Like it tends to be, um, I think I, that's my leash. I have a resistance initially to that, but I I don't know if it's true. I think I think desire in a collective sense is possible when there is a shared personal experience mm -hmm. of something. Um, so like what came to mind when, when you were talking is, you know, losing a family member, um, people will come around in a group or if somebody's really sick, maybe the person actually hasn't been lost yet. Somebody's really sick. There is a desiring for this person to be well, to help, to support, to come around. Um, and then also another example I was thinking of is. I grew up being um, quite connected to the Tibetan community here in the Lower Mainland um, that were refugees from, from India um, during the takeover of Tibet. And there is a lot of desire within that community for the restoration of, mm -hmm. of their land to themselves. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a shared experience and it's personal. And so I do think desire can be collective. I think that's a that's a very um a, a very very neat observation there, Charles. Um, yeah, but but for and I I could go. I mean, without we, um, we won't be able to solve this all today. But I I could easily I could go, but for social but for shared experience, desire has to be individual. But through shared experience, it can can become collective. Yeah, oh, I can go with that for sure. Yeah, because even um, not collective, but in a couple, right? We can have desire for each other, right? So is that experience of shared desire? I mean, I hope, hopefully, there is some mutuality there. I mean, uh, would that would that be a shared desire? Because in a couple, I desire you, and you desire me. We don't desire the same thing. Yeah, that's true. But like, like as an, I mean, uh, as an experience, right? The like intimacy. The intimacy. Yeah, there is. Um, yeah, or actually, intimacy could be the object of desire. It's not just I desire you and you desire me, but it could be the, um, the desiring to be the what's in between us, like that uh, intimacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose and throw throw children in there, and then you could have that a couple's desire for a child, and mm -hmm. yeah, that's also interesting. Yeah, about or it could be a desire for a shared project, uh, a shared desire. Yeah, like mm -hmm. a, like a podcast together, for example. <laughs> Who decide this? <laughs> and so then it's a sharing of values, it's a sharing of something personal that then we can come around mm -hmm. together and, and it's mutually desired. But I, I, so I agree with stuff that it has to, it's good in those, mo in those um, situations to check with ourselves too. Do I still desire? Do I still desire? Because mm -hmm. maybe I don't anymore. And so on that note, what are we going to do with um, uh, unfulfilled desires? What if I desire something or someone and I'm rejected in my desire or I don't get what I want? Like most Many people suffer from that. And I go back to what you said, Chelsea, that desire evokes the possibility of not attaining or of loss. Maybe I get it, but just for a little bit. And I just cannot deal with that. Simple answer is you cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Would you like another macaroon? <laughs> yeah, it'll <does that> help. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I think necessarily so. 
I, I tell this one of the things I say to clients um, a lot, you know, is uh, surprise, surprise, romantic relationships comes up quite frequently. And one of the first very brutal things I say is that your relationship will end. Yeah, I, I also benefit yeah. personally from this <laughs> advice a few times. And yeah, I agree with the word brutal yeah. as a characterization yeah. of the intervention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is, it is brutal, but it's true, right? Either your partner will leave you or, or one of you will die and your relationship will end. Uh, we can talk about enduring bonds and things, but, but the point is, is that <laughs> I, I, I do this in order to, to highlight that, yes, not only is there a potential of loss, but there must be in order for to, to, to have value. Otherwise, otherwise, then we have um, Chelsea and her thousands chai latte and it, it doesn't taste so good anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's so in, uh, intriguing because some, um, some people, I mean, philosophers, I mean, that I, <laughs> their name doesn't come to mind. But anyways, they suggest that it's, um, we only know the full capacity of, of love for something or someone when we lost that only after we lost that, like without or at least anticipating or conceiving the possibility of loss. And without that, there is no love. It's just, I don't know, lust or infatuation. But the loving and losing are very tied together. And they're the team for the conference for the Federation of European Existential Psychotherapy in June. So I d- I did not pay me to say that. So it's not a, an announcement. It just struck me that how uh, loving and losing it's actually a theme of an existential conference. And they are so connected. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should have put desire before death. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because desire also desire also can lead to death. And you mentioned Buddhism, right? Like I mean, they will probably tell you lots about how desire mm. is the path to suffering and eventually death mm. isn't everything the path to death All for for you sir for sure and we're existentialists and among all of us probably you are the most uh, brutal honest existentialist so you ca- you qualified yourself as such right like a uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a brutal, not a. No. Br- uh, <laughs> I mean, as a brutal existentialist. As a, br- <laughs> a, br- a brutal existentialist. Um, I, 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 yeah, I don't know if I would. I do think that the that there are that there is a brutal brutal thing to it. I've, I've, I am, I'm, I'm a big fan of um of a philosopher called um Slavoj Žižek. Um, who, who's uh, I think he's grounded in in in, in Hegelian kind of theory, um, but uh, he's he's quite interesting to listen to. He's got he's very idiosyncratic, but he uses that word brutal a lot, um, and and it's something that that kind of I, ch- I try to channel there in in that some things are so horrible in their in their brutality, and that that we must acknowledge it. But just because the reality is, you know, is brutal, the conditions are brutal, doesn't mean that we can't live and even love and and have desires within it. I mean, that's the whole basis of existentialism, isn't it? It's we we're born in the in this situation, and so now what do we do? We desire. What, <laughs> what if? Here's another question. Uh, what if our desires are inappropriate or are actually like objectively inappropriate? Not just subjectively, right? That I want uh, ice cream, I shouldn't have ice cream, stuff like that. But like really, you know, or 
like my desires, like some clients say, well, my desires really scare me because, oh my God, they are so wrong or so immoral or so. You're thinking of something like pedophilia or something, yeah. Um, hmm. Tough one. I think Chelsea has an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. Uh, yeah, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, I'm glad Zav started talking on this one. <laughs> Just let him roll. Yeah. And then you passed it over to me. Well, I mean, but then we th- then we get to to what we were saying earlier, and what you know, um, about desire doesn't have to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. That's that's really something, um, and maybe on a on a on a, sl- a more gentle note, but still a bit um, al- uh, alarming. I remember reading this um, article uh, about a, a, a psychotherapist who. His client came in and, and, and was terrified because he kept on having these um, fantasies of, of killing his wife mm-hmm. with a knife in a specific way and everything. And the psychotherapist was, and, and he was disturbed by this because he saying, I don't want to kill my wife, but I have these things kind of come into my head and I imagine myself doing it. And, um, and, and the therapist was convinced that he wasn't actually going to kill his wife and he so he told the the guy to to bring a knife in to session next time. So the guy brought a knife in and he put himself up against the wall. And he said, "Come, put the knife to my neck." And the and the guy couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to. And this was his kind of attempt to to demonstrate right the difference between some desire, some fantasy there, or, or maybe even a desire, but also having a that a gap, a a degree of control, like. Just because something you de- you desire doesn't mean you will or you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you distinguish between distinguish between action, right, and and um, desire. And with that uh, patient, that client, probably it was more like an urge obsession, like at that level, right. But like, yeah, with pedophilia, like uh, having desire lust, right, for uh, children. Like I, I like. Uh, I like your distinction definitely between desire doesn't mean action. It's just that pull. But some people for some people it's really hard to stop there. Uh-huh. Well and, and then and then but then maybe we go back to to kind of, you know, desire the, the, the difference between desire and obsession, right? It's is it a I cannot not do it, I have to do it, um, versus I want to do it. And that's a, a difference. I th- I think a very, very stark difference. But yeah, but certainly, how um, isn't so? Maybe maybe that's part of it. We we're, were talking about you know not desires not being fulfilled or being frustrated. Maybe this is what we need to learn and experience through life that there are desires that we we don't get to to um not fulfill um obtain obtain yeah obtain follow through on yeah like those uh, those that gap that we keep referencing sometimes it should not be crossed and it's not okay and then there's also you know having personal boundaries so that my footprint and my existence in the world is not harming others um and so to have to have a boundary is really important yeah absolutely chelsea and that's that i think that's that's that that was the the missing piece when we were talking about the i i i Right. This is it. It's there is a personal boundary as well that I I ought not to cross because I then cross into another's space or another's person. Yeah. And 
And again, desire is more about uh, that dynamic movement towards something, not about grabbing it and having it. Because then it's not desire, I guess. That's just the experience that may follow fulfilled desire, which is pleasure, satisfaction, or frustration, or whatever. But the desire itself, it's not attached to outcome. It's, I think it's just enjoying that experience of um, you know, being uplifted and uh, pulled towards something. That's desire. Like if I really want to fulfill my desire, that's a bit different, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Desire desire is not attached to outcome. Mm-hmm. You may see that on an Instagram quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you might. Well, it's just like anticipation, right? Like anticipation is is known whether it you know that which you're anticipating actually arrives or not. Um, there's something in the anticipation that is fueling or, or interesting, motivating. And, and um, um, I cannot, uh, it's still in my mind since you mentioned the Buddhism, right? <laughs> Your full Chelsea. But like it's clearly like uh, Buddhism and other religions draw a clear uh, connection between desire and suffering, right? Like it's absolutely direct line. Like the more we desire, the more deserve, deserve Anyway, the more we desire, the more uh, we um, subject ourselves to suffering because of what you just said, that we cannot uh, um, ensure the outcome and we are going to lose. I mean, as you as have announced us, relationship don't last, they will end. So all that thing, right? So because of that, like the more we desire mm-hmm. and the more we attach, right? Mm-hmm. The less likely that we suffer. And, and yet... I, I would suggest we ought not to. We ought not to abandon desire mm-hmm. in favor of not suffering. Okay, so so between desire and nirvana, you choose desire. Between desire and nirvana, I choose yes. <laughs> wow, that's a very easy question. <laughs> e- easy, easy answer. <laughs> a very clear position. But I wonder mm. if, uh, and maybe you know more, Chelsea. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to like <laughs> all the hard questions to you. Yeah. Maybe the Buddhism also uh, talks not so much about the desire, but the fact that we tend to also grasp and attach and hold and don't want to lose it. Aha, uh-huh. the attachment mm-hmm. can become mm-hmm. very strong. Um, but I think there's, I don't know, maybe there's a middle ground between desire and nirvana. Like you could have contentment <laughs> that, you know, to be present to what is and maybe something I desire crosses my path and get to enjoy it for that moment and then it carries on and you know I'm st- I still have my autonomy and and the object of my desire still has its autonomy and I enjoy it while it's there and then it goes and then that attachment isn't there necessarily um, and it doesn't become as painful I don't know about you just you speak really nicely about that like I, I look <laughs> up to you <laughs> I don't manage to really live up to it. Like uh, for me, desire is more like it's not compelling, but definitely it has a pull, a force. So the part about I watch it and kind of say, yeah, I can desire, but I don't attach. I'm I'm struggling with that okay. myself, okay. and uh, because yeah, I think desire wants. I think you said it really nicely. Like desire wants, and if you want, you want with your whole being. So the, the whole part is like I'm aut- autonomous and the object is autonomous. It sounds very good for me and very aspirational. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think when you can want something so much that you consume it and somehow that 
thing ceases to be that mm-hmm. which drawed you in the first mm-hmm. place. And so I think that's maybe more of what I'm getting at is if it's there and there is this encounter, enjoy it. But it might not always be there. It might go. And so it that thing, it, it has its own autonomy. It has its own existence in the world. And I think that's beautiful and to be respected. And I love it and I desire it while it's there. And then it's gone. <laughs> you seem so, so detached to me. Anyways, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, it's like, uh, it reminds me of something that, um, not, not what you said, but like going on the distancing a bit, like and le- leaving the object of desire to be oneself. Two things come to mind, like one written by Joseph Campbell, I guess, who said uh, about marriage and like, you know, sexual desire and the intimacy that is created in a marriage that works, I suppose, he meant, like that there is a transformation because there is no autonomy, full autonomy anymore of the <laughs> two people, that they are transformed through the others. And if there is no alchemical transformation, and if I remain fully myself the way I was before a significant encounter in my life, I mean, okay, was it an encounter? So there is a, there is a transformation, so that, uh, that's why I paused there on this side and another way it reminds me of something that is way more kind of prosaic and funny and inappropriate that what uh, my <laughs> clinical supervisor actually in my master's told us you know practicum post-practicum supervision and uh, a client was like uh, quite disconnected and wanted something but not fully and he said it's almost like uh, his client wants to have sex with the clothes on so don't I <laughs> and, and it's kind of like it's almost like it's always a bit of a of a not a full encounter and maybe maybe there's the difference between desire and encounter because when the encounter happens there is that potential for transformation and intimacy and merging in that moment of encounter right when uh, that field the interpersonal field is created and it's not just separateness right but while the desire there is more of that gap that you talked about yeah i think that might be what synergy is mm-hmm. to like the coming together of two things and something else is created or something greater something more transcendent is created but i don't know I, 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 don't, I don't know if 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 that transformation necessarily transforms you into kind of one i think the separateness remains um and maybe maybe like that the, the word used there shall synergy maybe that I, I, I don't know i have this idea that they are it's a it's a fleeting thing it's a temporary thing it's not an everlasting thing. The longer you stay with somebody, the more that's you know, the more you synergize. It's it it does, and then it doesn't, and yeah, it does. To- totally, I didn't mean about transforming into a one, right, and losing completely who I am. I mean, even if we want that, I don't think it's possible. But like being transformed, I think in long term relationship, yeah, if there is that, trans- if there are moments like this, over time there is a transformation. If not, that means that I maybe I had sex with my clothes on all the time. That's also possible, and I think that it could be very creative, too. Well, there are there. I'm, I, I'm, I hopefully somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some I think um, orthodox forms of Judaism where we're supposed to have sex with a sheet in between. Mm-hmm. Yes, with a with a with a hole in the sheet. Oh, yep. uh, yeah, apparently. I, I was using it as a metaphor, <laughs> not as actual. No, it's, it's an actual. Not suggesting so a there's a religious form of glory holes then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, that's. I think if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah. 
Yes. Maybe I mean, we'll cut I'm, that part out. You, you are not wrong, Chelsea. Well, you are not wrong. <laughs> and, and, and for for myself, I must say, like with embarrassment, that I I learned about glory holes from uh, Bonnie Henry. That's <laughs> <a bonnie laughs> I didn't know what they were, and I was thinking like before I searched, I was like, what the heck is a glory hole? <laughs> and I was thinking about something glorious, and Did I just couldn't. And my daughter knew. Did you Google it? Yes. <laughs> I did, and then I said, "Oh, <laughs> that's definitely not what." I <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of desire. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there had to be creative ways to still desire and connect during the pandemic. So, thank you, Bonnie Henry, for <laughs> providing us just one other way to do that <laughs> safely. In, in, indeed, indeed, and 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 that's that's something inter- uh, that um, that actually has come up in sessions, uh, not glory holes per se, but um, about you know dating and still kind of during the pandemic, and um, you know I'm sure Tinder's uh, usage hasn't dropped during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter whether you go through war, through prisons, through anything, people n- want, need, want to have sex. All the time, like it, it's just there. That that desire is almost irrepressible. Yeah. Is it is it desire or is it lust and need, right? So, because the drive is there, yeah, I don't contradict you. But is it also desire? I'm gonna say it's on a case by case basis. <laughs> <laughs> no, on a glory hole by glory hole case. <laughs> well, no, because one glory hole may be shared by multiple people. <laughs> Well, that's exactly why people are afraid of <laughs> talking too much about desire because it can go very quickly. <laughs> okay, well, but so desires are important. And so how can we um, cultivate desire? Ah. And uh, in our own lives, our own lives, but also with clients who are afraid of desires or afraid of unfulfilled desires. Yeah, so uh, it's maybe not quite... Um, desire itself, but I think it's a vehicle to help with desire. And I was um, mentioning this uh, earlier before we started that um, I read an article recently that I'll have to dig up. Uh, I can't guarantee I can find it um, about how um, how French kids are are, are taught pl- um, uh, how to experience pleasure through food. Right, so you I mean, just think about French food, right? You have croissants for breakfast, you have macarons and for treats, you have desserts. Like there is very much this the way that food is experienced and is with a pleasure. Um, and you know, it was contrasting it, I think, to to North American kids. Um, you know, and growing up with a French mother, certainly uh, you you are encouraged to 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 taste the champagne, to whatever, and and I think that knowing what pleasure is and enjoying it will stimulate a desire. And neither of them can talk because they're both eating <laughs> their macaron <laughs> that they desired. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> I could hear you chewing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you are so right. So like um, to have... Um, to have an environment, to have um, stimuli, you know, things that entice our desires. Like sensuality, so I mean, food—it's a big one, right? And that um, that is connected with sensuality and desire, like not living in an impoverished 
environment from a sensual desire perspective. And I think here in our culture, we tend to be quite impoverished in comparison to anyway, French culture or even Latin or South America. Yeah, even even as as you were talking, um, um, I, I kind of what came to me was a, was a, a baby, um, like a you know baby who's cr- who's on this t- stomach, my stomach tummy that you're trying to get them to crawl. You put something in front of them that they want, mm. right? And and so you you, you need exposure. Yeah, you know, so you not an absence of of stimuli. You need stimuli. You need to be exposed to things, um, to return to food, to try things, to to. To know they exist, to know that glory holes exist, maybe you'll go and try one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That was a major shift in my worldview once I <laughs> once I learned about that. But yeah, so it's interesting what you said. This is the baby, right? That there is um, uh, something ahead, right? That talks about also the dynamic of desire that you are pulled forward, right? But yeah, so the environment, but then also our own openness to the environment too, right? Because uh, I can have all the croissants and macaroons and all that, but if I'm on a restrictive diet because um, my weight matters the most to me, I may just <laughs> pass or block completely and starve not only nutritionally, but also in terms of desire. So there is both like uh, availability, but not too much. I also like the scarcity idea, Chelsea. Like um, it's there is diversity. There is, you know, there are those sensual things that I can that open up my appetite, but not limitless. Mm-hmm. There is also a scarcity and there is a preciousness to it. There is um, a value to the moment when I eat a croissant. It's not just any moment. Whenever I feel or I eat um, 10 croissants one after the other, there is no desire. I don't know I've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> so have I, <laughs> and there is no desire. <laughs> it leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. uh, m- maybe, maybe you know, touching on what we've said earlier, um, one of the other ways to to cultivate desire is, um, or or, or a, a comfort with desire is to experience and and to learn to be okay with loss, mm-hmm. right? So that I know that um, I, I I will allow myself to desire, uh, you know, uh, the woman walking down the street. Sorry, that sounds a bit creepy. Um, I'm just I was just referring to a generic woman person. What? Um, uh, but I, I will des- I, I will uh, allow myself to desire to be with somebody because I'm okay with not having or indeed losing that person. I, I'm not happy about it, but I can be okay with it. Whereas if I can't do that, then then yeah, one of the protective ways is I just cut off desire because then I won't lose. Yeah, then desire is too risky in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So there has to be some capacity then is what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. to desire in in terms of, you know, letting it be. And if there is no encounter or if there is. It has to be a a capacity to detach from that uh, outcome, right? To the insistence (laughs) of outcome, to decouple or uncouple the the desire from I, I must have this certain outcome. I think that's and the loss. I I like a lot what you said, right? That's a <laughs> perpetual one for me, right? Like losing and being okay with it, and even <laughs> maybe inviting or anticipating, like as you said, jealousy. Like that, there are uh, rhythms to desire. Um, there are moments when it's more distant or uh, the object of desire, and that's okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think what I was coming back to in my mind was even like sexual desire, sexual encounter. If the focus is on that outcome, that climax, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, ask anyone, how hard is it to actually climax if that's all you're trying to do and all you're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. and all your focus is there, you actually can end up with dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, this detachment from that outcome to just to be present and to encounter desire and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Al- I like that a lot. Like that, uh, letting our desires free, basically, like um, wherever they take us. Right, and at the same time, together with that, just to address um, why sometimes desires are blocked because of fears, to realize that desire is not action. It's not decision and action. So opening up to whatever it takes us and knowing that um, we have a final say into deciding to pursue an action or not. And desire is not necessarily the action, the behavior. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, <coughs> you know, just to, uh, I'm not sure if there's, I mean, surely we could keep on talking for forever, but um, if you'll excuse the um the, the the lame attempt at a at a at a joke. We we want to keep our listeners desiring more. So I think we might uh, end on on this note. So we'll leave you on this note with our existential question: What is desire like for you? How do you encounter desire? Have you experienced it in? the different forms that we've talked about today? Has it been painful for you or something that has been uplifting? We just invite you to reflect and we'll look forward to speaking with you again next time. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com